Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you that you are still sovereign and in control. I thank you, Father God, that we have opportunity this morning to fellowship as the body of Christ. And I ask, Father God, that as the body of Christ, we would be able to support Lori and the entire Sciple family. We know that Brian is with you, but I ask, Father God, that we would have opportunity to encourage and strengthen and, and come alongside them and help them know that they're loved. I ask, Father God, that you'd be with the children downstairs, that as they go, they would be thrilled with the gospel, that they would be filled with the word, and that they would have a deeper and deeper understanding of Jesus Christ and the work of the cross. Thank you for this time this morning. Thank you that we have opportunity to fellowship, encourage one another, and to learn from your word. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name, amen. Children, you are dismissed. <laughs> what fun. We're going to continue this morning in our series, The Foundations of the Gospel, from Genesis. Genesis is interesting, and we've come to a point in Genesis that we're beginning a transition. The first 11 chapters of Genesis are filled with beginnings, and, and really the, the history that's covered in the first 11 chapters is, is quite extensive. As we transition, especially into chapter 12, that changes, and it becomes more specific. This is the last of, of this section of history, and it's the last of some of the beginnings we're going to look at another beginning this, this morning. The floodwaters have receded, and Noah, along with his family, leave the ark. And, and we're told this in Genesis 9-1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God tells them, fill the earth. They were to spread out into the world. That's what that means. Fill the, fill the earth. Don't stay here. Start going. The flood is over. Eight people were preserved. The ark comes to a rest. Those eight people leave the ark. And all of the nations are from those eight people. Genesis chapter 10, where we begin this morning, is referred to as the tablet of the nations. And in that chapter, chapter 10, there are 70 nations listed as coming from the sons of Noah. This is the beginning of what we, we, we call races or, or ethnicity. This is where it begins. One thing that God shows us in this table of nations is that there, there is no such thing as racial or ethnic superiority. It's not seen. The people come out of the ark, and there's 70 nations represented, and, and, and there's all these people groups, but there's not one that's greater than another. It also appears in Genesis 10 that the people of the earth have already been scattered. For example, in Genesis 10:5, from these, the coastal peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language by their clans in their nations. 
And then in, in 1032, we see the same idea. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. As Moses recorded this, he didn't record this whole episode chronologically. So in chapter 10, we, we see this idea that they are spreading. He describes the, the, the languages and the nations as spread out. But chapter 11 gives us details of how the nations spread. So he's using kind of a literary technique of, of saying, here's, here's what, what we see. And he gives that first, and then he comes back, and he says, this is how we got there. And the history recorded in chapter 10 and 11 answers a couple of really important questions. Where did languages begin? There's a lot of different languages on the planet. Where did they begin? And the other one is, the earth is filled with so many diverse people groups. How, how did that start? So chapter 10 and 11 give us that kind of information. I don't want to step on, on Dean's toes about evolution, because what I've heard is if you really want to understand evolution, you go to his class. I'm picking on Dean today, because he picks on me. Um, the culture in which we live in has sold out to this thing of, that's called evolution. Everything, according to our culture, has evolved. Everything. All life has, has evolved by chance from nothing. That's what we're taught. That's what everybody seems to, to, to look at. Life has evolved from nothing. Humans evolved from simple biological creatures. Now, I have met some human beings that... You know, one cell... Well, everything in our society has come to a place that it rests upon evolution. Biological development, intelligence, social interaction, the nations, languages, everything evolved. That's what we're taught. That's what, what our society just as a whole looks at. But the Bible does not teach this. The Bible teaches nothing evolved. Nothing evolved. God created everything. Everything exists by God's design. He is the creative cause of everything. In our society, anthropologists and linguists conceptualize a long evolutionary process of language developing from primitive inarticulate sounds, that's kind of where I live most of the time too, is inarticulate sounds. And then there were little chirps and, and noises, and, and then eventually there was crude words and languages, and then those languages developed other languages, and, they, and you, you, you have this picture of evolving language. That's not what the Bible teaches that's not historically what the Bible wants us to understand. God created the universe. He created humans, and He created humans with speech and with a language. 
And I was reading this week in a couple of sources. One of them is a very Jewish source. And the belief by many is that that original language was Hebrew. Interesting. Now, I don't know if I want to go there or not. It doesn't matter. God created men and women with language, with spoken words. It's important for us to grasp that. In chapter 10, as Moses wrote this, it it, it appears that the people are being obedient because he portrays them as, as spreading out across the earth. But when you get to chapter 11, he gives us a totally different story. People were not spreading. They were gathering together and their intent was they were planning to stay together. There's a rebelliousness. Let's look at Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. It's it's an easy concept, I think, when we read that. Okay, one language, we get that. But then why does he add, and same words? That's an important part for us to understand because they not just had the same language, they had the same vocabulary. This reinforces the fact that at this time in history, all of the human beings on the planet had no difficulties in understanding one another. They, they could talk with each other, they could plan, they could, they could speak to one another, and everybody understood exactly what was being said. We should know that there are differences of vocabulary within languages. We are considered an an English-speaking nation. We speak English here in Wyoming. It is a certain kind of English. There's there's other people groups on the earth earth that speak English. I I think of of England, the, the British. They speak English, but it's a very different kind of vocabulary. The playwright... George Bernard Shaw once noted that Britain and the U.S. are two nations separated by a common language. Many examples. One of them I like is chips. Now I'm going to use this three different ways to help you understand. Chips to the British are French fries to us. I remember standing in a little town called Red Ruth that's in western Great Britain And we're having fish and chips. Oh my goodness, it was great. Okay, well, what are chips here? Well, most of us go, chips. Well, you're talking about potato chips or Doritos or, okay, those are chips. Well, there's a third way that we use chips. Out here, we have cow chips, which are a paradise for flies. You know, it would really mean nothing to a, a person in Great Britain if you were, don't step in that chip. And they go, what? Same language, different vocabulary. How about eating irons? Eating irons? What are eating irons? Uh, a fork, a spoon, a knife. Okay, you, you get that? Okay. I was picking on Dean. He, he sent me a text because he knew I was doing this and he goes it, 
it's, I don't know what time it was in the evening, it was dark outside. He goes, it's so dark tonight, it's like the inside of a cow. <laughs> now, I really appreciate that from a guy who's inside cows on a regular basis. <laughs> how, how about this one? Some folks, well, if you kid some folks, if you tease some folks, it's like licking a loaded polecat. And those of you who are chuckling understand what a polecat is. And you go, you won't lick a polecat. And you know what the results would be. So, so vocabulary-wise, you get it. But there are some people who go, what? Polecat? I used this one this morning and... and Larry Steinley was in the back, and, and he got it. We'll see who we got this morning who gets this one, because you may not, some of you may not get this. You're in trouble if your neighbor's cows hang around your calf pen and ball. And there's a reason why. The whole idea is that even in our life, here in Wyoming, there is a language, which is the same language, but a vocabulary that very often is different. We could say that about some marriages sometimes, too. The idea is that in Genesis chapter 11, everyone understood everyone. That's very important. They didn't have a vocabulary problem. They didn't have a language problem. They all spoke exactly the same language with exactly the same vocabulary. Now, so with that in mind, let's go on to verse 2. As the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, wait a minute. Didn't God say, go be dispersed? There's four things that I see here that really speak of rebellion against God. One of them is that they were building a city. It shows they do not want to spread out. They do not intend to do what God said. They're not going to go out and fill the earth as God commanded. Out and out rebellion. We're not going to do that. We're going to build a city. A second one is that this city also speaks of providing for their own kind of security, their own kind of power. So, so they're relying on their own strength. Instead of relying on God, another out-and-out rebellion. Thirdly, the tower. The tower shows the people want to make a name for themselves, and it's a prideful kind of thing. They're making a name that says, we are so great and so good. We're going to lift ourselves up to the same level as God. Their pride drives them to find a way to lift themselves up and reject God's plan and provision they're raising themselves up to be God. Same kind of sin that caused Satan to be kicked out of heaven 
And it's the same pride that was found in the garden. People are thinking that they can determine what is best. They can determine whether God's plan is good or not. We have to remember that pride, if you, if you sort out sin, it doesn't matter what the sin is, if you kind of sort it out and filter it down to the, the root cause, the very basis of all sin is pride. People believe here in, in Genesis that their unity and their construction projects will cause them to have a name to be praised like God. There's a pridefulness here. And what they're saying is, look at what we made. Look at, look at how great we are. Look at what we can develop. Look at all of our technology. We can make things just like God makes things. Oh, really? You know, it always astonishes me when we have that kind of pride, uh, pride you know, and, and I think of our technology. We can take silicone and we can make semiconductors and we have these things that we call computers. We do have a love-hate relationship with those, but who created the silicone to start with? So it's very prideful for anyone to say, yeah, we can do what God can do. And here's what they're doing. We're going to do it as good as God. And the fourth one is that by their own works, by doing this prideful construction, they're designing their own way to reach heaven. And heaven in their minds is to, to, to get to the heaven where God lives. So they want to raise themselves up by their own work to a place of accessing God's throne, God's presence. The reality that the Bible teaches is that no work of humanity is great, enough enough, is great enough to provide a means into the presence of God. You cannot access heaven where God lives by your own work. The Bible teaches that from cover to cover. Are we able to do great and wonderful and mighty things? Yes, We've done some amazing things. And some of what we have done, we've achieved because we've broken through those barriers of language confusion. Now let's go back to Genesis 10. We're going to bounce back to 10 because there's a person, there's a single person mentioned there who helps us to understand really what's happening in chapter 11. Genesis 10.8. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Eric, Ekade, and Kana in the land of Shinar. Nimrod. Nimrod is portrayed here as the leader and the name Nimrod comes from a Hebrew root word that means rebel or to rebel against. His name means to rebel. There are many sources that I, I looked at, and, and it's, it's a fascinating study just to study Nimrod. Because these sources, Hebrew sources in particular, believe that hunting... This, this great hunter, his hunting was not limited to hunting animals. 
There's an animosity and there's a rebelliousness in this man, Nimrod. It's believed that Nimrod was a wicked killer and by his ruthlessness became the unchallenged leader of all of the population of the earth. It wouldn't have been safe to oppose him. This is the man who led the rebellion against God. I lean towards believing this about Nimrod because it fits within the future of Babylon. Babel became Babylon. Babylonian Empire. The Babylonian Empire is is a later version of what's going on in Babel. And it plays an important role in the end times opposition of God by the Antichrist. And I see in Nimrod the foreshadowing of the Antichrist. So you have this rebellious leader leading a group of people who are in open rebellion against God. And God responds. Verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. In verse 5, God calls them the children of man. You could, you could also translate that from the Hebrew, the sons of Adam. The reason it's important to think that way is because the sinful nature of Adam continued after the flood. Sin continued. And it continues today. Paul explains this to us in Romans 5.12 when he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. We carry sin. We carry rebellion. Also in verse 5, it says that the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. Now, God, God didn't leave heaven and come down and go, Oh, wow, look at that. That's amazing. I was thinking between the services of, of, of what I experienced, uh, you, you may not know this, but the Patronus Towers, at one time they were the tallest buildings in the world. And I remember going there on one of the trips to India. We stopped wherever that's at. I can't remember the country, but we went to the Patronus Towers. And you're driving along and you're thinking, okay, we're going to see the tallest world, you know, tallest building in the world. And all of a sudden, you're driving down and you make this, this sweeping turn on the highway. And there are these twin towers. And you go, oh, man, that is incredible. It, it just takes your breath away. Really? What in the world are we thinking Does God not know what's going on? God sees everything. He didn't come down and get a surprise like I did when I saw those towers. What we have here in what the Holy Spirit directed to be written is a mocking. God is mocking the ridiculous idea of man's attempt to reach heaven with a tower. How silly is that? You're going to reach to God's place of abode with something that you made? Now, on the one hand, you could use the terminology reach to the heavens as as meaning reaching the earth's atmosphere. That's easy. 
Okay, we could go there. But that's not what's meant. That's not the rebellion. The rebellion is that they wanted to reach heaven, meaning where God lived. And there's no way man's prideful structure could reach God's abode in heaven. Can't do it. What a ludicrous, prideful idea, thinking that you could construct a means of reaching heaven. Verse 6, And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. God, again, he reminds us, they were of one people because they had one language. His solution? Confuse their language. Mess that up. He establishes different languages, and he divides the people into, into different people groups. And you start seeing the nations. You start seeing different races. You start seeing this whole idea, and it seems to be massive commu- co- confusion. And this confusion makes it extremely difficult, if not impossible, for humans to unite and make global plans to rebel against God. When they were all together, it was easy. You just follow Nimrod, you rebel against God. We're all going the same direction. Everybody understood. Everybody knew what was going on. God confuses the languages, and no longer can you do that. In an amazing, sovereign act, God causes there to be thousands and thousands of different people groups and languages. It didn't evolve. God just went, let there be languages. Now, wouldn't that be crazy? You've known somebody all of your life, and and you're speaking the same language, and and maybe you're speaking the the same language, and God goes, okay, it's time, and all of a sudden you're talking, and they're going, what in the world? I haven't got a clue what you just said. And and the other person is doing exactly the same thing. There's, There's total confusion. And I believe the way that God presents this and the way God designs and the way God creates, this just simply happened by God's decree. He instantly limits what humanity can achieve. Verse 8. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Now, on the one hand, we can see this and we can go, man, God made something really confusing. But this is something that we need to look at and go, this is an incredible act of grace by God. Why? Why would this be an act of grace by God? Because What we're seeing is the population of the earth is pursuing the same rebelliousness as the population was pursuing before the flood. It's the same kind of rebellion. 
God can't deal with the rebellion the same way because he promised Noah he would never again destroy the entire world. Genesis 8.21, and when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, that would be from Noah's sacrifice, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. This is grace. By confusing the language of people and spreading them out over the planet, God intervened to keep humanity, the sin of humanity, under restraint. This confusion of languages and, and nations restrains the power of humanity to rebel against God. And that, that, that restraint will be there until God's perfect time for His plan to ultimately deal with sin with the final judgment. When you look at the things of God, when you study the Bible, remember that God does everything for a reason. There is a plan. He is a designer, a planner. So on the one hand, the confusion of language was God's judgment of the rebellious men and women. But on the other, God's actions go far beyond that judgment to grace. This is also not a reaction. God does not react to the things we do. Like parenting. None of us as parents have ever reacted to what our kids do. I was, when I wrote this, I was thinking of my two sons. I love them both dearly, but there was a time when, okay, in their rebellion against dad, they were playing with matches in the wood shop. And you just. I am surprised. You guys are old enough to know better, A, than to play with matches, and B, you're doing it in the wood shop. God doesn't respond the way we do. He's got a plan, and he's sovereign. It wasn't that he didn't see this coming. This, this whole thing wasn't an afterthought. This is part of his plan. This is part of his graciousness. This is part of his sovereignty. The forming of multiple languages and people groups was designed by God. And a big part of that design was for the amazing global glorification of Jesus Christ. This is a beginning. This is a beginning of what we see as this incredible glorification of Christ. So here's some things that God accomplished by the confusion that he began at Babel. At first look, we would go, um, the division of language hinders the rise of, of Christ. How, how are we going to preach the gospel? Well, well, what's really hindered here isn't Christianity. What's hindered is the rise of a global anti-Christ, anti-Christian state. The confusion that God produced 
really turns out to not be that much of a hindrance to evangelism. It hinders, it restrains the Antichrists. And there will be a time. There will be a time in human history when there is one anti-Christian state and there, was, there will be one anti-Christ leader. We're not at that time yet. The other reality is that the gospel have, of Christ has spread and flourished because of the 6,500 languages on the earth. The gospel of Christ just keeps going because that's God's intent. It's not really been hindered. It, does it make it more difficult sometimes? Yeah, it does. But actually, this is a glorious thing that God has done. One of the other reasons why I can say that, and these all kind of fit together, is that God is setting up the future. He's setting up the future of His plan. And what's His plan? His plan is to glorify Jesus. Babel in Hebrew is translated Babylon. Babylon, according to Revelation 14, 8 and 9, is the city of the beast. So this Babel, this confusion, glorifies Christ ultimately because at the appointed, at the appointed time, when God lays this out, Christ will come. And what does Christ do? He destroys the beast. He destroys prideful rebellion, and all of those will be eliminated from the earth. So I see this as a, as a, as a huge setting up of God's plan. Third, God's judgment ultimately glorifies Jesus massively. Because Jesus will be magnified by the disciples of every language and nation and I'm reminded when I, when I think about this, of the travels that I've had, I have stood in, in East Germany and worshipped with people who, their language is, is German. And on the one hand, you know, they're talking about Jesus in German, and they're singing in German, and you just kind of go, I'm lost. But at a certain point, especially with the music, they start singing songs about Jesus and you know exactly what they're talking about and they're praising and they're, and they're honoring and they're worshiping God. It glorifies Jesus. And I've experienced that in, in German. I've experienced it in Spanish. I've experienced it in Telugu. I've experienced it in Hindu. And I've experienced it in Kechi, an Indian language from Central America. The people of Jesus worship Jesus. That's a bigger glorification. Think of that. All of those nations, all of those languages, all looking towards Jesus and His gospel. And that's related to the fourth one. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for all people. Romans 1.16 Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. One ethnic group does not get it better than another. 
The gospel is effective in every language. Oh my goodness, what a thrill it is to go someplace like rural India where I've gone and they speak Telugu and most of them don't have a clue what English is. I don't speak Telugu. I don't know how anybody speaks that language as a matter of fact. And I preach the gospel. And I've told you about the night I'm at a, at a meeting and it's dark and, and we light the place up and we start this, this huge program. And I preach the word and they say, you're going to have to stand up higher. All the short jokes can happen now. I get it. So I, I, I step up. Actually, it was three steps. So it's very similar to this. And I'm standing on these steps and I'm preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. I learned later that I'm standing on the third step that leads you into the main entrance to a Hindu temple. There's a reason why the Hindu, Hindu priests were standing in there going. They did not like the fact that I was preaching Jesus. That night, there's like 500 people who come to Christ. Holy smokes, what's going on? Well, it wasn't my preaching. It's the Spirit of God. God is, is able to, to make His gospel, the gospel of Christ, effective in any language. I'm reminded of being in Belize. Maybe. We might have actually been in Guatemala. Nobody really knows because we couldn't find the line painted on the ground. And to my left, as I'm speaking, I'm speaking English. That's what I know. And to my left is a man speaking, translating in Spanish. He's got English and Spanish down. So I speak, he speaks. I still wait because the man on my right is a catchy Indian who understands Spanish, but hasn't got a clue about English. The congregation was made up of people who understand either Spanish or Ketchy. They don't have a clue what I'm saying. I speak, he speaks, translating the English. The English is translated into Ketchy, and the people out here are going, Praise God! Glory to Jesus! In Ketchy. And I'm going, Well, I know what they're doing, but God's. God's plan is to glorify Jesus. His plan is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The diversity of languages at Babel provided the means of the gospel being proclaimed in thousands and thousands of languages. Does that not glorify Jesus even more? Which brings us to the fifth. Ultimately, all of creation will praise and honor Jesus Christ. This just makes it even more massively incredible. And this sets up what God tells us is going to happen in Revelation chapter 7. Beginning in verse 9. This is just one of the places. Verse 9, Revelation 7. After this I looked... And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, 
clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And because of that context and because that's written that way, when it says crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, that's not just in Hebrew or just in English or just in Ketchy. That's in all of those languages at the same time, giving honor, praise, and glory to the Savior of the, of the world. So the judgment at Babel, yes, it's a judgment. And confusion was the result. But it provides for this massive, magnificent, and glorious future eternal praise of Jesus Christ. This is incredible. This is an act of God. It's an act of grace. And it points forward. Thank you, Father. Father, I thank you that you have given us your word and that by your power and by your plan and by your sovereignty, you have a purpose and a purpose that extends for all of eternity. I ask, Father God, that you would help us to recognize what you're doing Holy Spirit, use us, no matter where we're at, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Help us to view every person as belonging to you and as designed by you. Holy Spirit, use us to build your kingdom, not ours. To build your kingdom, to lift you up. And I thank you, Father God, that we will, for all of eternity, have opportunity to glorify you and magnify you. In your name, amen.